previously on the psychology of entrepreneurship. Currently, I'm the CEO of Children's Ground, and Children's Grounds are First Nations organisations. Children's Grounds was set up for systems change. Those of us who are lucky enough to have been born and grow up with privilege like myself, then I feel that my role and responsibility is to impact the systems to allow people to have that power and privilege over their own lives. It's nefarious, man. Like the brain works in fucked up ways. The mind is one of the most deceiving, manipulative pieces of equipment, flesh, human bodies on earth. I never have trusted my brain. All of that weight lives in your head. And you are the decision maker. Psychology of entrepreneurship. Hi, it's Ronsley. If this is your first volume, welcome. This is a weekly series where I go inside the mind of an entrepreneur, artist, athlete, academic to decipher what is the psychology of our decisions. I'm Australian and I'd like to acknowledge our traditional custodians of country where I live and work. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge our continuous connection and contribution to land, sea and community. Today, we've got a treat for you from the archives. This is a full-length interview that we've never, ever released before. And since all of you have been asking for full-length interviews, here's one that you should really listen to. Your success is just like, as another agency owner, I love what you've done. It's amazing. Do you think of yourself as the visionary? Or the integrated. I was going to go somewhere else, but do you think of yourself as a visionary? Yeah, no, I have visionary. I have, a, I have an incredible business partner that's more the integrator. And I hate calling myself a visionary, but I'm much more the sales, marketing, biz dev, vision, like where we're going guy. And I have a great COO. And so when you started off, right, because I started off having the one on one conversations with people going, hey, you need to start a podcast. Three or four years ago, I used to tell people, hey, can you imagine what's going to happen when? you know, social media for audio comes along because right now social media for images is so mature that we stop what we're doing to stop an event, to take a selfie, right? To be able to use it. And now that it's come, you've seen a lot, you've worked with a lot of businesses with Clubhouse and this type of social media because it's new. Everyone's like, what the fuck really hit us? What do you see so far? What are your impressions any sort of predictions? What, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Funny enough, as I was starting Hawk, by the way, I never planned on Hawk to be big. I was just building a little team to help with clients I was advising for. I hit up a friend of mine from college and tried to get him to start an audio social platform that was more similar to Twitter, but for audio, where people would put out 30 second messages. And you could, because the idea was I was at a commute when I first started Hawk. I had to drive about 45 minutes a day to my first client. And so on the way there and back, I'm like, I don't want to listen to music anymore. I don't want to listen to the radio. I don't listen to my friends bullshitting. I want the audio version of Instagram or Twitter so I can just hear a bunch of BS. And so I was like, let's make it. He didn't execute. He like was like, you know, kept telling me next month, next month, and then just never went anywhere. And now I sent him the billion dollar raise for uh, Clubhouse. I was like, well done, buddy. How you doing? <laughs> so definitely have thought this was a huge opportunity, not because the same th I don't think in the same way podcast is. Podcasts are like very similar to radio, in my opinion. It's not engaging. This is the bite-sized B. Like not everyone wants to be educated every hour of the day. Sometimes you just want to be entertained and you don't want it to be complex. Meaning like you don't want to hear 
and it, like I don't want to hear music, but I don't want to hear the a deep dive for three hours into Elon Musk's brain. I don't need either. I just want to hear some people talk about their you know their dating life or their uh, you know or their business or whatever. But I like I, I don't want it to be so structured. And so Clubhouse filled what I was trying to fill then too. And don't get me wrong, I think ideas are a dime a dozen. Like I'm not like it's kind of like the Bitcoin thing. Like oh, I was told about Bitcoin when it was eight bucks a coin, which is true. My buddy told me to invest 10 grand and he knew what he was talking about and is now a billionaire, but I did not do it. We all have that story. I don't think there's much clout to that story because like everybody has those situations. It's actually execution that matters. But I do think now, like Clubhouse is super interesting. I think the mass adoption that's happening right away is COVID driven. Everyone's misses being around people. So I'm really curious when we can go back to grabbing dinner with friends and going to bars, et cetera, what it looks like. I don't think it goes away. But I think the usage of it currently is unsustainable. There are people spending 12 to 15 hours a day sitting on Clubhouse. And when the world comes back, so to speak, and that doesn't seem to be that far off, I can't imagine it continues in the same way. That being said, at that time, we might have enough scale on it that, you know, even though, let's say, everybody spends 10% of the time, but there's going to be 10 times as many users, it still will be afloat. And so, you know, I think there's going to be something interesting there. There's a reason I spend time on it uh, is the, the investment currently is. It was both fun and lucrative. Like I've made some amazing business connections and I've also made some amazing friendships, which is really interesting to see. Like there's a a guy I met out of Texas that we have a ton of mutual connections, never knew who he, I've never heard of him before Clubhouse. And now we chat like every day and we text and like, and I'm like, he's in Austin. I'm like, I got to come hang out with you in Austin. Like you got to come to LA. Like that happened. And by the way, this is in the past couple of months. We're not talking about like a six years of sitting on a Clubhouse. Like I think, you build relationships so much faster with audio because you hear that inflection, you hear that personality, you understand the person more. And so I think that there's something to be said about that and like opening new worlds up for people. So I listen, I think it's going to be a part of the mix going forward. And the difficult part is unlike Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, it takes time to dedicate to it to actually use it. Like, you know, we had one earlier today, like you got to, and I kept getting phone calls through the middle of it. Like, You've got to dedicate hours. I'm going to spend two hours tonight on uh, one promoting my buddy's new food company. And like, that's real time. I've never spent two hours on Facebook or Instagram. So never. And, I, and I'm considered someone that uses it too much. I have never spent two straight hours on either of those platforms. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm the same, you know, Eric. And, and I keep calling you my drug dealer because you you were the person that hooked me up. <laughs> And when you hooked me up, I thought it was just another thing. I see. I haven't looked at email in in three years, maybe more. And I, you don't like. Uh, I mean, haven't been on a social media platform, so on and so forth. And then getting involved in some conversations that we I, I would have not been part of has been just phenomenal for me. Just like being in the same equation, and now allowing myself to partner with people create these interesting spaces. So from your perspective, you've been on like so many different stages. You've seen different people moderate. What spaces are we not creating on Clubhouse that maybe we can do in smaller bursts? Yeah, good question. Because I do feel like it's redundant, but I'm not sure. Like I'm trying to think what's missing. Because there's a, there the, the interesting thing I watch is I'm trying to think what room, oh, I was in a room last night with like some of the biggest people in Hollywood and major actors and Academy Award winners. And there were like 200 people in the audience while the mindset shift on how to make a million dollars next month had 2,000 people. What I think is interesting and, and actually explains a lot is 
watching what the common user on Clubhouse, which I think is at this point probably representative of the world, what, what's interesting to watch is the, the, the masses gravitate towards this get rich quick, even if it's from a completely uncredible source that who, who the fuck are these people versus people that are actually successful talking. Like I'm in a room with the creators of Entourage, a major actor, not, not an entertainment guy to be clear, a guy that owns 15 restaurants around the country, the top vegan chef in the country, all these people. And there's like 30 people in the crowd. And it's like, what is everyone looking at? And then you're like, oh, it's mindset shifts and meta, you know, it's like, okay. Like, you know, and I'm all for that. I don't even call it spiritual. That's not the right state, but the mindset kind of side of things, I think it is important. I think a lot of people need to get out of their own way, but there's also a part where it's like, yeah, but if you actually want to be successful, you got to go like learn something, not just talk about, and so like, I've just watched it for the past couple of months, these mindset rooms and these entrepreneur rooms that literally talk about the same thing every day continue to have thousands of people listening. And I've realized there's something about people where by listening to this, they feel like they're being productive and they almost feel like they're validated. Like, oh, I did my work today. This is, I'm done. Instead of like realizing, no, you did not accomplish a single thing. You just listened to it. And like, again, I'm being a little harsh here, but it's, if, for me, how I've looked at Clubhouse, I don't know, and this is a funny admission, but I've listened to almost none. Like I have not, it's very rare that I join a room and listen because there are very few rooms that I'm like, oh, wow, I listen to Elon Musk. I listen to Mark Zuckerberg. I listen to a few times in different like fundraising rooms and things like that, that like were real VCs, like Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz talking about fundraising. I listened. Other than that, I'm there to meet people that are on the stage with me. And if people want to listen, that's great or have fun. Like my, the one we're doing tonight, we do every week now. I, but again, my buddy, Lou Lombardi, he's an actor that's been in like 250 movies or something crazy. It's a guy that like, no one knows his name, but if you see his face, you're like, oh, it's that guy. I even make fun of him. Like you're the, oh, it's that guy. Like he's in everything. He's in the new rock show that just came out last week. He's in, every, he filmed in Australia actually. And he's in everything. And he, he's be trying to transition into the food business. And so I was like, well, let's, you know, host a room with you, me and my, another one of our advisors that's from New York and just shoot the shit about food. And then we called, he, he was on Entourage. So we called the creator of Entourage who brought his co-creator, who brought someone else, who brought another guy that owns a restaurant, who brought the guy from Prince Street Pizza and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden it's all these New Yorkers shooting this shit about like the good old times and Hollywood and food. And that's fun. And I think like going back to your point of what's missing, like there's great, uh, Leah, I forget, Lamar, I think is her last name, hosts a great comedy show on it. But there could be more of that. There's such an entertainment aspect that could be going there. There's some DJ rooms, which are fun. But again, I'll listen to the radio or Spotify. I got that. But comedy has been good. The Lion King was the first thing that crashed the app when the cast of The Lion King did something on Clubhouse. That was back in, I think, November or December. That was amazing. And so like things like that. And I, I feel like if this thing continues to be a self-help guru's palace, it's going to get old. How long is that sustainable though? Like, you know, it's uh, there's only so long that uh, people are going. I don't know. I hope I hope that that changes, and that's the reason for me kind of going, because there's all these invitations right now, and these invitations to be in these squads, and I'm like, and then and I I have been. I mean, like 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 yourself, I have been on the stages, and and I'm listening to them going. I, have you run a business? Like what what price yeah. is this? Like. <laughs> <laughs> I had that this morning. What was, oh, it was how to, people were giving advice on how to reach out to successful people to work with them. And all of them are like, 
you know, if you like say like, oh, you're from LA, I'm also from LA, we should grab coffee. And it was like the advice that I'm like, do none of you have shit to do? Because I get a hundred of those a day of like, we should grab coffee. It's like, no, I, first off, I don't drink coffee. I don't drink caffeine. Second off, no, like I'm busy. What the fuck do you want? And I'm not trying to be, a, again, not trying to be a dick, but like, I'm happy to help people. I do it. We do a ton of that. We do a ton of free work. I'm always down to give advice, but like, ask me your question. Don't ask me for an hour of my time with no context. That's terrible. That is mean, actually. And so, but that's the advice these stages are giving. And I'm like, if you guys all take those calls, you obviously don't have the calendar I have. Because I literally, when someone says, can we grab 30 minutes? As you know, because we just booked this. It's like, okay, how's, you know, April? Yeah, and, and, and that's the case. I mean, it takes so long to get things to align. And what's really fascinating yeah. is that people are giving away like, uh, what, bio audits? And I'm like, how do you have the time to go through someone's bio and say, hey, fix this and fix that? So it's fascinating how that's going down. I wonder when you think about the space for brands to play, and I had a really good conversation with friends of ours at Being a Talent uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, it's fascinating because on Clubhouse, you cannot, a brands can't get there, right? It, it's, it, you have to partner through a personal brand. What are your thoughts on the evolution of personal branding as a result of something like Clubhouse? Listen, it's done a decent amount for me. I've never built a following on a platform. Like, don't worry, I have, I think, a lot of fake followers on Twitter. So that's like a quarter million, but they're not like, that was like back in the day, follow, follow back, all that BS. Like my buddy said, I can grow your Twitter. And I went, sure, sure. And then never did it again because I realized how BS it was. I had 4,000 Instagram followers pre-Clubhouse. Now I almost, I have like 10.2 thousand. Clubhouse have 40,000. And so... It's in the real because it's all just built on me being on there. I I have seen deal flow from it. I have seen people reaching out. I, what I've seen more than anything are a lot of people that already know me now hearing me talk, hearing how I operate. And I don't mean to be shitty about this, but like I, I, I kind of, I'm straightforward. I don't really BS. I kind of just put it out like it is and how I think. And I like, I've learned like, I want to do what I do for a long time. And if you BS, it'll catch up to you. So I don't. And so it's actually really benefited me because people have seen the consistency. And now they go, oh, wow, I've known you for a few years. Now I hear what you're talking about. It sounds like it's all the same, but going well, like we need to talk about work. So that personal brand side for me is different. And that's something I alluded to when I first started using Clubhouse actively. There were a few people with, you know, Lamborghinis and Ferraris in their profile pictures and stuff like that. And I've always hated that because I, because there's a reality to it that I think it's such a stupid promise because let's say a Ferrari costs three grand a month, just ballpark, three grand a month. I don't have an employee that makes that little. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, so why are we celebrating a fucking Ferrari? I have 200 employees that all make more. I could have 200 of them if I wanted to fire my team. We're not saying that's the case. I'm just saying it's not. Why is that a celebration of wealth? And I called it out. And then they're like, well, that's not like for you. You're trying to attract like business owners and people that know that that are going to work with you. We want the audience that's, you know, aspiring to get there. So, you know, the people that are like think that that's what money's about. And it was just a highlight that like, you know, I don't want that personal brand. And that's the people that do attract the biggest audience. The And I hate to say it, it's just on my podcast today, but Grant Cardone and some of those guys, that's who shows up. It's the want entrepreneur. It's, and by the way, no fault to Grant. He's figured out how to build a business. And by the way, he would say that. He would say the same thing. But like the people that pay for a ticket to 10X, there are some people I know that I respect that go. But there's a lot of people that are, you know, working a wage day job, don't plan on doing anything else and go there. Similar to what I'm talking about with listening to Clubhouse, they think that that is the step to be successful. So it's almost like a pat on the back. Like, well, I went to 10X, so like I'm going to grow now. It's like, no, you got to actually go do the shit you talked about. 
it's crazy that you say all this stuff and I really want to talk to you about the marketing aspect of it. When you think about all the people that you're helping right now, right, with the mm. marketing evolving, there's a lot of solopreneurs that get into business going, oh, we've got to meet them where they're at. And what people want is the Ferraris and, and get, is that true? Like, oh, we just adding that. Is, there, is that a fire? We're just adding fuel to it. You know, I, I think like, and I learned this with, through a lot of the marketing I've done. You got to look at who you're attracting. If you, if the entrepreneur that will never afford a Ferrari, and that's the aspiration is to afford a Ferrari, is who you who would make a good customer for you? Then sure, that's not it's not commonly a good customer. So I think most of the people that are doing that, like I actually saw, I'll call it out. You know, Billy Jean is marketing. Yeah. So he's built this persona and talks about how rich he is. They publish their revenue. It's a five million dollar agency. Like cool. It's not bad. It's a pretty small agency. Like yeah. they published this in Inc. 5000. Like it's eh, okay. Like I expected this guy to have this massive business and you go, okay, but there's a reason for that. Because when you promote that, you're not attracting solid businesses that know what they're doing. You're attracting entrepreneurs and people that are just getting started. And like that they're, they're in it for the Ferrari. They're not in it to build, be a world beater and build something like the people that want to really build a big business. The Ferraris, like they might end up with it and it might be in the first year. Like it's not, that's not a big milestone. If you run a million dollar business, you can probably afford a Ferrari. Like it's in, and I mean, top line, I don't mean profit. So like, it's just not that hard to get there. And so when that's who you attract, you're not going to build a big business off that audience. I mean, unless you like the course thing, you can make cash flow, but then you have a, might have a, like Ty Lopez seems to be the, the epitome of that biggest one that did it. And it seems like he made, you know, several million dollars a year selling courses to you know, poor bastards that took his word for it, that he'd make them rich. Um, I don't know where you go from there. It's not a scalable thing. That's going to be a big business. And you watch him now he's pivoting into buying brands and stuff like that. I'm curious to see how that all works out when he actually, actually has to substance in the business. Um, by the way, one of the most entertaining guys to listen to on clubhouse, but guys out of his mind. But, uh, I, yeah, I just, I, I think when it comes down to that type of person, you're attracting the wrong type. And so instead, and that's for me, if that's the business you want to build, great. But I'd rather attract really smart people. That's always been my desire. We talked about this when we first started Hawk. I want the best marketers in the world to look at what we're doing and go, I want to hire those guys. And I actually achieved that. That was like, a, a, there was a goal of mine, which the guy that actually first really taught me digital marketing was a guy named Chris Nella, who ran marketing at Shoe Dazzle, Gamefly, Soul Society, Snapchat, really bright marketer. And I said, if he'll hire us and work with us and enjoy the work we do, we've done a good job. And he did. This was five years ago. That was a big milestone for us. So I was always like, I want to attract the best, not the worst. And a lot of people build this persona to attract the bottom of the barrel type of customer. And again, I'm I'm not, I'm I'm using this as as a sort of descriptor, meaning like the Ferrari aspiration thing. Nothing wrong with wanting nice cars. Like I don't, I'm not, it's not like I like racing cars, but like I'm not going to go buy a Ferrari. But it's if that's the motivation of why you're going to start a business, you're fucked. And a lot of people, that's what they're attracting are those type of people. And I think that's the mistake. So when you were growing, was there any, was there temptation in the buildup? Because when you were starting off, right, you were going, okay, I'm after these type of clients. What was that process like? When, how did you, how did you start? Because I know you started with one-on-one conversations and you started with conversations with people. Then what was your next step? And who was your first hire? Was it an assistant? Yeah. First hire was an assistant. How did you go about that? Yeah, exactly right. So what it was, was what are all the things that I could have someone new? She was great. 
Rebecca, shoot, I forget her last name. It's been seven years. She was great. And she basically followed me around. I was running around to clients and she'd like meet me at one client, like work with me at Starbucks and stuff. And, you know, looking back, God bless that girl, because coming out of college and taking a job with this random 26 year old that's running around with random clients, like she took a risk. Then I hired a few people at once. I hired who became my partner, but he was supposed to be our director of strategy. He was going to focus on managing clients. And then he just managed everything. So he became my COO and partner. Um, and that happened in like two weeks, to be clear. So he's been, we co- he's a co-founder. Like that was really when it went from me to a business. So we consider him a co-founder uh, fairly. And then we hired a biz dev person. We hired a few different marketers, like an email marketer, a Facebook marketer, a web designer, et cetera. And that's where the model started because it, it, I really like it started as me being an advisor and consultant to a bunch of brands. I tried to hire a bunch of agencies to do the work. They all dropped the ball. I went, screw it. I'm just going to hire my own little team to do this. Again, no intention of actually building an agency. I was just like, I need to do something. So I hired this little SWAT team using the money I was already making. Because I got, so I was 27, just turned 27 when I started hiring. And I was making 30 grand a month. I was used to making three grand a month. So I was like, well, uh, it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to go again, back to the Ferrari. Wasn't going to go buy a Ferrari. I was like, I'm going to go spend this money on things that'll help me do this better. And so I hired a team and month one, when I hired the team, we went from 30 to 65 grand that month in revenue. I was like, okay, cool. So like, and I paid them each three grand plus upside. So I made more money with that small team than I did by myself. And that's when I started to get the itch. I'm like, there's something here. We should double down on this. this audio documentary has always been to build a strong community of entrepreneurs and creatives to provide a space where they can use their voice to share their authenticity with the world. As a valued listener, your voice matters too. We love to hear your feedback and ideas. So don't be shy to let us know how we're doing in the ratings and comments. If you have a message for our production team or know someone who would be a perfect fit as a guest, You can find out more information on how to share your input at psychologyofentrepreneurship.com. With all those accomplishments, 30 under 30, 40 under 40, top 25 marketing influences, uh, you've got fastest growing company, you've got a whole bunch of stuff. When you look back, what are the stories that people don't know about? Hmm. You see the celebrations. I'm not, I don't do the pity party thing on the other side. Like the pain points and the struggles of running a business, I'm not public about. Because I don't think there's any, it's not productive. There's always challenges. And I'd say the last time I was really stressed out was when COVID hit. And, but before that, it was often. And then I realized like, this is on me. Like COVID really, really professionally helped me in, in a, from a way I looked at my business. Before that, it was always, I, you know, we'd have a problem. I'd, you know, my I would feel my head get foggy. I'd get all stressed out. Like whether, it, you know, it's a frivolous lawsuit or an employee quitting or stealing our client or getting attacked by a competitor or getting a, a, a tax bill that our CPA missed. And we had to, we got a surprise hundred thousand dollar tax bill with no cash to pay it. Like all the shit that frankly, I'm not saying these exact things happen in business, but things happen. And we, a couple years ago, my partner and I started talking about like, it's always good. We, it was always up until a couple years ago, or maybe two and a half now, 
it was always like, well, if we can just get this in place, then it'll be good. And then you get that in place and it's not good. Like things happen, like it, it, there's no end. And so we realized we were sitting there and I'm like, you know, Tim Cook runs the biggest company in the world and he's dealing with trade wars with China, now COVID, you know, just strikes, unionizing, fucking Foxconn and all these things. Like it doesn't end. It never ends. That is what you sign up for as an entrepreneur and a business owner. And so I started to really get into that mindset and remind myself of that. And over time, it didn't happen right away. It wasn't like just boom, now I'm fine. But over time, we started to, I started to look at our problems differently. And I was like, yeah, but I, like I could leave whenever I want. I'm not here. I'm not a victim. But these are the problems that come with running a business. And I signed up for this, so I'm going to do it. And I would say COVID was the last time that that hit. And I didn't know, and we used to joke, like our business, because we're all month to month, we have no contracts. So like, it was like, yeah, you know, in a recession, we're still a cost-effective option. I'm not worried about a recession. People aren't going to cut marketing completely. And we're actually a good option. That could be a benefit to us. But if the whole world shuts down, we're screwed. Because then everyone's just going to stop doing marketing because the whole world shut down. And then March 13th, the whole world shut down. <laughs> and it was like, oh, now what? Um, and so I def I had no backup plan for that, like most businesses. And so I spent a week, probably the most stressful week of my life, like in terms of like actual manifestation of stress, like didn't sleep. I never had a problem going to sleep. I literally didn't sleep, couldn't think about anything else, just focused, came up with contingency plans, figured out what we needed to do based on what would happen because we had no idea where it was coming. But then after that week, I had spent all of my time figuring that out. And then we had plans. And since then, I realized like, as long as you have those kind of plans in place, then you just, you just do it and you get the emotion out of it. And whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But I have to say, like, we've had plenty of shit hit us since March of last year, but now it's like, yeah, this is going to happen. Worst case scenario, we lose the whole business. Thankfully, I'll be okay. And it's a weird thing because they've even done biological tests on this. Like biologically, entrepreneurs attach their own life to their business. So when your business is threatened, it actually feels psychologically why your life is threatened. And if you want to argue with me, one of my good friends is a Navy SEAL. And he told me that COVID was more stressful than any time in his experience in Afghanistan and Iraq as a Navy SEAL. Going through COVID as a business owner was way more stressful because it felt out of control and felt like you could die. So again, not logical, but emotionally, that is how it feels. But once you come to terms with it, once you can separate that, you, it's just a lot more fun. And now it's fun. Like problems or not, it's a fun time to run a business. You know, I, I've got so much to say on that, Eric, because a friend, a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Sherry Wollin, she's volume two, by the way. And she spoke about how on that second volume about how we like, it's like our baby, right? We associate everything with it. That's why we can't take feedback necessarily, especially if we're creative, visionary. How do we compartmentalize that because we've got all these, especially in the group we are in, right? With group we're in, we want this balance. We're in that group for a reason because we similar yeah. uh, thing. How how do you separate that? What do you do? Do you have stuff happening that actually allows you to separate it, or this anything that you do actively, or is there it just comes with experience? What's the goal? I would say practice, not experience. I think it's it's intentionally separating it over and over and over again, and reminding yourself that. Stressful things happen. Right before this, I had a call where I had to argue with a client that didn't want to pay us for work we did that they approved. Like it was literally like, and funny enough, very New Yorker, I love them actually, just to be clear. And he's like, hey, we got on the phone and I'm ready to like go to toe to toe. Like, cause it was like, 
my whole team was so put off because they're like, we're not paying for last month. We want a refund. And they're like, you approve this. What are you talking about? I was like, what are you like? This is a bad sign for us guys. Are we ending the relationship here? And they're like, let's get on a call. He goes, we're not fucking paying this. And I was like, hold on. You approved this thing. You said all this. We did exactly what you asked us to and it performed. Why the fuck do you think you don't have to pay? And he's like, yeah, that's all you had to say. You can tell me to go fuck myself. I just thought I didn't want to pay. Like very New Yorker. Like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, we'll have it paid tomorrow. I'm like, cool. But again, like if I, and I've and I'm and I'm, it's like all right, cool. And then I, I he's I, I think he's gonna drive me on clubhouse later. Like it's like when once you can do that. And again, it took a lot of practice because there were I I still I got asked recently like one of the things I regret with the business was when a client did a similar thing to me and I went off. I have threatened legal action and go fuck you're gonna like went crazy. And all I did was lose a client, still not get paid, because then I, you're not going to, it's it's so hard to fight for getting paid in these kind of things. And like a good relationship, et cetera, it took years to recover. And I didn't get anything out of it. Like, why did I react that way? So like, you have to be a little self-aware that you start to realize like, oh, let's focus on the outcome I want in this stuff. And like my biggest outcome more than anything, I want to enjoy myself. And thank God I do what I love. And there's going to be, everybody's going to have parts of the job they don't like. It doesn't, you don't ever get away from that. But that's okay because I'm, I'm in it by choice. And I think taking that ownership and getting the victim, because I see a lot of entrepreneurs talk about like the stress of it and the burden and woe is me as an entrepreneur and the risk and all the things they sacrifice to be an entrepreneur. It's like, yeah, then don't do it. Like, go get a job. Like, you're not a victim. And I think people get into that mindset of like, uh, you know, everything that's happening to me, nothing is happening to you. And I, I think I should validate this. COVID hits you own a restaurant or your our friend Curtis Christofferson, you own a chain of gyms in Canada. That is hard. There is a challenge there. But I will say as a crass statement, you still made the decision to be an entrepreneur. And whether it's COVID or a lawsuit or a trade tariff or something, you're going to deal with stuff like that at some point in your career. That is part of the job. And be, if once you're aware of that, then you're like, yeah, this is what I have to do. And, and Curtis is an amazing example of this, where in three days, he had a virtual gym and has now like got the biggest virtual platform for working out, period, with every celebrity on it, et cetera. Like, that's what he did in COVID as a gym owner. So, And I have friends that built amazing ghost kitchens with their restaurants and ended up making more money in COVID than without. And all these things that like, that's the job. You're going to have to deal with adversity as a business owner. You're going to have to deal with adversity if you're a person. It just at some point, shit's going to happen. I don't know that there's a generation that's just had it easy their entire generation. But I think, again, once you accept that and own it, you're going to have fun. You can have fun with it because you because then it's not. a. And that's one last thing that I've always heard, like happiness is when reality exceeds expectations. So if you expect shit to hit the fan, then you're fine. You're like, yeah, this is normal. Like you expected it. My business partner, actually, and I've never I don't think I've ever repeated this when he had his first baby. He and there's a lot more details in there. And he's got it now his third on the way. But. He told me, I was, I asked him afterwards, like, how is it? How is like the birthing process and everything? He's like, well, if you go in expecting it to be a shit show, it's a shit show and you're fine. And that's what it was. He's like, all my friends were very honest with me of how it goes. And like, so when I went in, it's like, yeah, this is all normal. If you go in thinking it's going to be like perfect and easy and normal, then you go in there and you freak out. But if you go in there knowing that it's like, this is a crazy situation, then when it's crazy, you're like, yeah, this is what we signed up for. Same thing in business. Like if you go in knowing it's going to be crazy, then when you when it happens, you're like, yeah. And I, I got my first piece of advice of that. One of my, and it's a long story, but I had an employee literally like call me on a Monday morning or email me and say, he's going to be working remote. 
bail on all my clients. Tell me he's getting married that week to a girl he met over the weekend. Like it was a crazy situation. And like, it was when I had like five employees and I was freaking out because I had no idea. And my employees were, or my client, my four clients were angry and blah, blah, blah. And I, thankfully, this is when my business partner stepped in. And he's like, I got it. You go home. And I, I left the office that afternoon. And I called my dad to tell him about it. And he's an entrepreneur. And I tell him this like five, 10 minute story. I'm like all the details about this guy. And I hired him. And then we have these clients and went to Hawaii. And now he's getting married. And, blah, blah. and I tell him this whole thing without pausing. And then I'm, and he's like, yeah, I mean, that shit happens all the time, Eric. I got to go talk to you later and hangs up. I was like, oh, all right. So like that advice, the unintentional advice of that is the best advice I think I've ever been given. Because then you have fun with it. Like you're going to deal with shit, but it can be fun. Yeah. And, and you mentioned some really good points about enjoyment. I mean, David Cohen, who started Techstars, he spoke about like uh, enjoyment from the start. I actually interviewed Graham Turner, who is the CEO of Flight Center, $17 billion a year company. Flight Center all over the planet. And he had a similar story of what he did when COVID hit, right? Flight Center is like, uh, it got hit really badly. And in a boardroom, 17 hour days uh, with his top, top team. And it's fascinating because I was at Vayner watching them shut down overnight and go virtual 1,200 employees. When you're saying expect shit to hit the fan, like one of the things that comes to mind in terms of those like really crazy conversations that I've been part of was the first time I met Gary Vaynerchuk, that is. And he spoke for the first three minutes. And then I spoke for 20 seconds, 20 seconds, Eric. And he's cut me off and said, Ronsley, I get the feeling from you that you think the world owes you something because you were the first to market. The world doesn't owe you shit. Just get better <laughs> at what you do. And I was like, what the fuck just hit me? <laughs> but you know, I got goosebumps right now thinking that made me such a better entrepreneur that 20 seconds, yep. like 20 seconds made me a better person, a better entrepreneur. When you think about those kind of like parts in your life, what, what comes to mind? What are like the ones that you're like, like a dad one? I heard that before on a clubhouse. Yeah. What are the other ones that come to mind? Uh, other piece of advice. I actually like Gary said something that resonated with me. I, I, we've done a bunch of stuff together, but when I first met him, he said, you know, it's actually exactly in line with what I just said, which is uh, being an entrepreneur is eating shit and your ability to swallow will define how successful you are. Like, and again, I don't take that as a victim complex because I actually believe like you chose to eat shit just to be clear. So like, you might as well swallow now. It's in your, like, it's like that same. And I loved that line because I was like, yeah, I actually agree because I see so many people fail because they just can't just swallow it. They just get worked up about it. And yeah, so that was a good one. I would just say like, it's not like some one liner that someone gave me, but the, the other most important thing I think I've seen to scale a business is to understand what it is to invest in your leadership. And what I mean by that is not cash. I mean, it takes, and this is something I've talked about a lot recently because I've learned it recently. It takes an executive way longer to ramp up than an entry level employee. The higher they up in the company, the longer it takes them to ramp up because all our brains are the same size. Maybe we're a little smarter, give or take, but a lot of times it's just experience. But an executive has a lot more to digest than an entry-level employee. They have a lot more to get the nuance of, a lot more to get on top of. And so what I've seen is it takes over a year for a senior executive to really become like, act, like worth it. You know, that, that being said, like I, we have an executive team, a lot of which have been under a year. They're great. But by the time they're over a year and they get all the nuance of the business that I've taken seven years to learn, 
that's when they start to catch up and you can, they can actually take things and run with them. And they can actually come to you with like, we're doing this wrong. We got to fix this. Like those kind of things start to really come out. And so like my head of finance, he's been with us a year and a half now. And he changed our whole accounting practices uh, end of the year. It's like 2021, we're going to Gap, we're doing this, we're doing that. And like, he's way brighter on finance than I am. And now we have these amazing projections that we're hitting. And like, that goes back to peace of mind of running a business. My business is so much more predictable now that I'm not scrambling every month trying to figure out, are we going to die? Like, no, like I'm, that's how we're going to do. And we're actually pretty accurate. And so um, that kind of stuff that he was able to do and like all credit to him, nothing to do with me but it took him a year and a half to have enough context to do that. So the most, that's like been the, my most important recent learning is hiring an executive and expecting them to not do anything for a year, which also means me spending a ton of time with them during that year, still doing the job with them because I can assume they're not doing it. Eric, when you were explaining that and starting to talk about that, that took me at least a minute to wrap my head around that. But that is such an important, because you're right. Like, you know, someone like yourself and me who started everything. And when we had like 30 employees, I used to do everyone's job when we first started. Yeah. And then, then it just got like crazy, right? The main thing is that we forget that we built it and it comes so naturally to us. And we've got to like... Well, I wouldn't even say, yes, it came naturally and we built it, but also just, I don't, how many years have you had your agency? Four. Four. So if you hired someone today, you expect them to have as much context as you do. Like, no way. So like, it's, it's going to take them a while to get the context. And that's the important piece. There, It's not a lack of intelligence. And I made mistakes on this through the growth of Hawk many times where I hired someone, you're a new head of marketing, go, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and it's like, well, they didn't know. Like that wasn't fair. And, and I mean that, like there, there are people that I brought on as executives thinking I'm paying you a lot of money. You better get going right away. Cause logically that makes sense. But then you go learn through experience. Like, no, that's not a fair statement. You're not going to step in and know right away. And it's been so good to now give my executives time and not have high expectations early on so that they can get up to speed and then start to have high expectations, just to be clear. But now we have a team that actually is pretty damn good because we've given them time to get to where we need them to be. And we're working with them all the time. So it's not just like, do you have a year? We'll talk then. It's every day we're talking because I don't think you've got this yet until you do. So what is that process like for you then within Hawk? Because this is obviously now going to turn into Coach Ronsley to improve Amplify. So when when you <laughs> when you how do you hire? Like how do you hire and then get to investing in leadership? So how do you think of it differently at Hawk and then go? Okay, we're going to hire this person. We're going to give them the systems and the and the and the nurturing and the and the time to obviously get up to speed. What's that process like? And and how do you how have you built that? Yeah, it, I'm not the perfect guy to ask that. I only really interview senior executives and people that work directly for me now. But we have three full-time recruiters, an HR team, an onboarding team, a training team. You know, we have a whole recruiting process. I mean, we have 200 people now. We're probably going to hire, I think it's 120 this year is what we're expecting. And that's if we hit baseline, which we are. So I had 150 on, on my notes here. So you've, got, you've, you've gone past 200. That's crazy, dude. Congratulations. Yeah. So Thank you. So it's, yeah, it's going to continue to grow. At this point, it's about making sure that we don't lose the things we need for good people through management layers. And so we have to have a very defined hiring process, which frankly, I've, I meet our new employees every month. We have like a session with our new employees. I think we're doing a great job. I really like all the people that I'm meeting and all the people that are brought in. I don't interview everyone. I don't interview most people, but I meet them all. And when I do, honestly, I've, 
I haven't had anyone in a long time that I'm like, what? <laughs> and it used to happen. But now I'm like, no, this is exactly the type of people I want to see working here that are excited about. And we realize like a lot of it goes into obviously their skill sets and skill tests and their personalities and things like that. But then it also goes into setting their expectations of the job really well. I learned that from our head of HR, where the job preview is critical. This is what our mission is. This is why we're here. This is what the job is like. Scare the shit out of them. So when they come in and it's, it's again, expectations versus reality. When their expectations are, this is going to be the craziest fucking place you've ever worked. You're going to work your ass off and you're going to grind and you're going to learn a ton, but it's going to be painful. And then when they come in and it's like slightly less than painful, it's great. <laughs> then that goes back to the expect shit to hit the fan sort of thing, right? Exactly. So you just get expectation. That's fascinating. Eric, I've got so many questions to ask you around digital marketing because it's changed so much and it's especially changed, you know, since uh, we all got locked up, I suppose, in our houses and and suddenly like events have gone from in person. Like I said to Taki the other day that if Australia lets us out, I will fly for MMT and do the 14 day quarantine on the way back because I miss people. Yeah. How has marketing changed and how, what do you see in the trends that has happened over the last year? Yeah, you know, funny enough for us, it just accelerated everything. Like e-commerce went from 13 to 30% of consumer spending in the United States in three months overnight, basically. So we over doubled the market share. Spending didn't really go down because of all the stimulus packages. People are just spending money. So we we saw like we saw our average client double their revenue in Q2 of last year. It was insane. Facebook got way cheaper because all the big CPG and automotive companies pulled out of Facebook and pulled out of everything because that's what big companies do when there's a crisis. And so everyone else benefited from that. So the cost to advertise on Facebook and Google dropped about 30% in Q2 of last year. The market share grew massively. So if you didn't fuck up, you grew a lot. And we had a lot of clients grow a lot. And then things subsided a little bit, Q3. Q4 election and holidays really grind that down. And I think we're going to see 2021 is going to be a lot harder to acquire customers because now Walmart, Target, all the big guys are going, oh, well, market share is way more digital now. Let's put our money there. And that increases the price for everyone. So we're focusing a lot on lifecycle marketing, SMS, chatbots, email marketing, content creation, things that'll keep your customer because you still need to spend on Facebook, Google, et cetera. They're still the best place to get new customers. But now you have to convert better. You have to monetize them better. You have to create more lifetime value for that to happen. In terms of channels, I think TikTok's on its way to being a bigger marketing channel. I think it's one of the only channels that the usage is similar to Facebook or Instagram, but actually in a better way because you kind of expect random shit to pop across your newsfeed. It's not just the people you're following. So I think that's going to be an interesting platform. Other than that, I'm actually more of a proponent of not chasing the shiny object. Like there's always new shit out there, but that doesn't mean we should be using it. The best advertising platform is still Facebook for new brands. And it has been for a while. And it's because they've optimized an incredible platform that they continue to build out better and better ad products based on their data. It's hard to compete and catch up with. You recently started a podcast and with all the stuff that you have going on in the digital marketing space, and you could easily, easily have like sort of targeted your customers, is that the reason why you went into a podcast because to create life cycle or what was your reasoning? My reasoning was all the guests. My reason was I knew all these really cool people that would have no reason for either of us to sit on the phone for 30 to 45 minutes to hear their story. I don't really, not all, some of them I do business with, a lot of them I don't. Like 
meta world piece. At some point we might, because he's got an entrepreneurial side, but like these NBA players and these athletes and these cool people that I've met through my travels, through MMT, through all these cool things, I, I guess I naturally like efficiency and not leaving anything on the bone. I'm like, I have this aspect of my network that I can't do anything with. What would be cool with it? And it's like a podcast. I want to hear their, like, what do I want to know? I want to hear their origin stories. How do these people be, like one of the first people on it was uh, Colin O'Brady who climbed, uh, or he was the first guy to walk across Antarctica by himself. Just walk, literally 53 days, I think it was, with a sled by himself across Antarctica. And I'm like, I want to know that story. Like, how the hell do you become that guy? Like, no one wakes up, like, maybe he was an active guy as a kid, but I'm really curious. And his story is as compelling as you would expect it to be. Almost burned his legs off in Thailand, like, crazy background. And so I that it really perpetuated, like, there's a lot of cool people that I know, and I don't even know, like, Chris Birch, another guy we've done a little work with, like, multi-billionaire, really interesting guy, but, like, how? Don't tell me, like, he just started something, got lucky, blah, blah, blah. Like, and that happens, but, like, so I started doing these interviews with like all these interesting people's origin stories. And I got to be honest, the, the following's small. It's Hawk Talk. It's a, you know, it's not a big listenership, but God, is it fun to interview these people and build relationships with them and to get to know them. And that's the reason. It's, it's the person I have on the other side of the mic, not the audience. Though I realized like I might as well let other people listen to it and create that value. And now the listenership's really growing. And I, and I also know from friends that are big podcasters, it's going to take years before there's like a, you need a lot in the hopper and it's a slow build unless you artificially do it or you have a huge following somewhere else. And so, you know, it'll build over time and I'll keep doing it, but it's a fun thing to do to, and it also kind of forces me once a week to go have a 45 minute conversation with someone really cool. A couple of days ago, I used to introduce myself as the person that knew famous people because I just felt like everyone I knew was just like fucking huge. And then I realized that maybe I'm the guy that just curates the the conversation. So I started to like reintroduce myself as, you know, the person that curates the conversation because only because I've done over 1200 interviews now in the last seven years. Yeah. And I've had so many of these conversations. I literally just recently interviewed people on death row, which has been mind blowing entrepreneurs on death row rather. It was fascinating because these, these humans were, had ran a business from inside. They were artists. Like, you know, one was a DJ, one's an artist, one's a, a, a poet. And you're like, wow, that's crazy. So, I mean, now when I get a chance to do this on Clubhouse and it's all live, I feel like, and I don't know whether uh, this makes sense, but I feel like Clubhouse is like the live show and the live concert and the podcast becomes a record or the album, right? The album that you have. Yeah, I think it's exactly on point. I think... If you look at how that, you know, if you dissect that, Clubhouse is a live show, which will have mistakes, is a little more free, is a fun experience that it's a good memory, but then you get the produced, polished version, which is the podcast, which it depends what mood you're in. Because sometimes you want the experience and sometimes you just want the polished version. And I think that's exactly right. Well, Eric, this has been a, a little slice of heaven, man. I got a, I got a chance to chat. I think even... At MMP, we didn't get a chance to chat this much, but um, right. I appreciate yeah. Thank you for getting me addicted to Clubhouse. Dude, thank you for making time for me. I appreciate you. I appreciate you a lot. I know you're busy. Thank you for having me. Psychology of Entrepreneurship. Coming up on The Psychology of Entrepreneurship. 
I always thought I was made for more. I always thought I was going to do something great. I'd started getting into Anthony Robbins and Robert Kiyosaki when I was like 15, 16. I went to my first personal development seminars, <laughs> different things that, that brought out that personal development and that idea that I know it sounds so corny, but the idea that if you could dream it, you could actually craft and design your life around whatever it is that you wanted to do and be. And I always kind of had that in me, but I didn't know what that was going to look like yet. And it's taken me a really long time. I feel like up until a few years ago, I was still finding that. This is a Must Amplify production. Special thanks to every guest expert that has appeared on the show. Editing, voiceovers, and sound design by Kaylee Bonniman and Tiago Vega. Guest research by Jenna Elliott. Content by Corinne Castles. Project managed by the legend that is Kaylee Bonniman. Produced and hosted by me, Ron Slivas. For more episodes and way to listen, go to mustamplify.com slash P-O-E. Love the polished audio docu-series style of this podcast, The Psychology of Entrepreneurship? At We Are Podcast, you can learn how to create a similar style for your own show. This revolutionary virtual event assembles podcasters, entrepreneurs, and marketers in one spot, so you're able to learn from the masters. Head straight to wearepodcast.com to reserve your spot at our next event.